Well, as you already heard, today we enter the season of Advent. It's the first Sunday of Advent, and though it's not uncommon in our context to use the terms Advent and Christmas somewhat as synonyms, historically they're distinct. They're intertwined, but they're distinct. So while Christmas is the celebration of the seismic shift of history that took place in the birth of Jesus, Advent is somewhat more like the catalog for Dick's Sporting Goods that came to my house this week. So one of my daughters, Margot, and I spent an indecent amount of time looking at the Dick's Sporting Goods catalog together. We're looking at all the things that we just knew. If we had that, then it would bring all the satisfaction we were looking for in life. So her hopes really centered on various pairs of shoes. For me, it was also various pairs of shoes, and various items of clothing, various pieces of workout gear, and that one really gorgeous baseball glove. She and I sat there, and we dreamed together, and it was one of those like perfect-for-a-Christmas-card moments of deep family bonding and abject idolatry. And Now, as much as I love sporting goods, at the end of the day, each of those items can't truly deliver on the promises made by the catalog, right? The ultimate promises of contentment and joy that they seem to offer. And at Advent, week by week, we receive an invitation, an invitation to consider what it is that our hearts most deeply long for, things that we know deep down we can't purchase anywhere. So for the coming weeks, we are going to consider each Advent theme by looking back in the story to the echoes of Advent that we find in the pages of the Old Testament. I hope you have a Bible with you today because we are going to be in a lot of places, starting in Genesis 15. So if you have your Bible, you can open it there. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the very first book of 66 that combine to tell the story of a loving God's pursuit of making right all that has gone wrong. So the passage we're about to work our way through will drop us into the middle of a story. So I want to spend a few minutes getting us up to speed on where we'll be so we can understand what's going on in Genesis 15. In Genesis 12, we are first introduced to one of the most significant figures in the Old Testament, a man named Abram. And we read this in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, we might not notice it at first, but God makes a really big ask of Abram in this passage. Sandy Richter helpfully outlines it in her book, The Epic of Eden. She says, go forth. In other words, leave everything and everyone that makes someone in a patriarchal society secure. And trust God for a new identity and a new place. Take a moment to translate this into your current economic and social situation. Leave your house, your job, your friends, your church, your relatives. Abandon your inheritance, a 401k that will not transfer, and maybe even the equity in your home. And go somewhere where you don't speak the language, you have no business contacts, friends, or relatives. And trust God to make a new place for you. This was a very tall order indeed. God makes a really big ask of Abram, but alongside the really big ask, you probably also noticed God makes some really big promises, promises with immediately obvious hurdles in them. 
So God says, I will make you into a great nation. And it, to become a great nation in the ancient Near East required both children and land. And Abram had neither one. Which makes the promise of these verses seem fairly ambitious already, especially when you factor in the detail that at this point in the story, Abram is 75 years old, childless, and about to become a nomad. And yet, somehow, in Genesis 12, 4, we read this, Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So, Genesis 13 and 14 covers some eventful few years. We're getting to Genesis 15, I promise. Genesis 13 and 14, we see a quick trip down to Egypt in which Abram reveals his less-than-rock-solid confidence in God's promises. He passes off his wife as his sister and allows her to be taken into the harem of the king of Egypt. It's like basic reality TV kind of stuff. Then later, Abram and Lot divide up the land, and then there is some straight-up tribal warfare that results in Lot being taken prisoner and Abram coming to his aid by rallying the militia that he apparently keeps at his own home, you know, just in case. And they go and they redeem Lot and get him back. The Bible's not boring, folks. Yet despite the twists and the turns of those intervening years, not much has really happened to make the promises of Genesis 12 seem any closer to reality. Now we are ready for Genesis 15. You can stay seated because we're going to work through this text and many others in sections. But Genesis 15 begins this way. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. I think this is one of the most fascinating conversations in Scripture. God draws near to comfort Abram in his distress. He tells him, do not be afraid. We don't know exactly what it is all he's afraid about. He draws near, says, do not be afraid. He reminds Abram that he is his protection. He is his provider. And Abram basically says, nuh-uh. That's not a literal translation of the Hebrew, but (laughs) captures the essence. To be clear, Abram is accusing God of over-promising and under-delivering. The sting of unmet expectations left Abram feeling despondent. We can understand this in all of life, but particularly at this time of year, right? Whether it's not finding that one most hoped for present under the tree or not getting the Christmas bonus that you were actually counting on, not getting the invite you were trusting to keep you from spending the holidays alone and isolated, unmet expectations can lead to deep grief. And in Abram's case, even shaky trust. We get a glimpse of his deep disillusionment with this hopeless question, Sovereign Lord, What can you give me since I remain childless? He points out, God, you're sovereign. You are free to do whatever you want. What can you give me since I remain childless? And this verse might be able to pass from your description, but in verse 4, the gloves come off. And Abram goes for direct accusation. You have given me no children. 
So when Abram assesses his life, he sees pain and grief, and he hands God the receipts. How did we get here? Well, given the magnitude of the choices he's made, it is easy to imagine that for Abram, his ongoing childlessness probably felt day by day like a nagging question about the trajectory and purpose of his whole life. Did I trust the wrong God? How can I possibly hold on to hope in the midst of this? I mean, what kind of God promises a kid and instead forces someone to settle for a workaround? Because that's exactly what's going on with Eliezer of Damascus. Trimper Longman comments, the adoption of a household servant was an attempt to solve one of the gravest consequences of not having a child. As a couple grew older, they would need assistance as their physical and mental abilities deteriorated. In the absence of a child, who would take care of them? After all, there were no retirement centers in the ancient world. A solution was offered by the adoption of a household servant like Eliezer who would take care of them in their old age and then, in return, would inherit their possessions. That last part is key. I said earlier, we don't know all the reasons that Abram was afraid, but at least one thing he was afraid of was that he would not only die childless, but that Eliezer would inherit his possessions. Y'all, that is no way to fulfill the promise that God made to turn Abram into a great nation. Abram is sitting in deep disappointment with unmet expectations and fading hope. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. After launching what amounts to a full frontal assault on God's character and his faithfulness, Abram is met with deep grace. And it's probably profound kindness that verse 4 comes before verse 5. Because after what Abram said, if the first thing God said to him is, well, you want to step outside? I imagine dude's heart wouldn't have been able to take it. Instead, God clarifies and then actually doubles down on his promise. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Now, in a patriarchal culture in which inheritance passes through the male descendants, the birth of a son is always good news. And when you factor in that Abram in this part of the story is already in his 80s, this is ridiculously good news. And after reaffirming this promise, God now invites Abram to do some stargazing. He says, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. When I was about 20, I think it was the summer that I was 20, I went and visited um, some friends who were working at a Christian camp in the Sierras. And they had a little bit of time off at one point, and we got in a car And we drove a little away from the camp, and we went around a couple turns, and we finally got to a place where the lights from camp were totally blocked out, and it was a totally clear night. And there were so many stars, like nothing I'd ever seen. I I still remember it 25 years later. And I know many of us in this room have had similar experiences at some point, which is good because it gives us a little inkling that a nomadic desert dweller in the pre-electric ancient Near East, would have been invited outside by the God of the universe, told, look up, try to take in the stars, and encountered something a little bit more like this. Just 
stunning. So shall your offspring be. Chills and humility and apparently trust because somehow that night sky viewing was enough for Abram's shaky heart. Would you look at verse 6? Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, I don't know what it was about the stars that night that caused Abram to settle into a posture of trust, to rekindle the dwindling flame of hope. But when God reaffirmed his promise, Abram believed. And the story of the promised lineage picks up in Genesis 18. Can you turn there? We're going to jump in at verse 8 in a moment. But here's the background. In chapter 17, we see yet another reminder of God's intention to keep his promises. He changes Abram's name to Abraham, meaning the father of many nations. He changes Sarai's name to Sarah. And in so doing, he reaffirms his promises. At the start of chapter 18, some divine visitors come to Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham rushes around to extend appropriate hospitality. So let's read beginning in verse 8. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which is behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. <laughs> well, it seems that flagging hope is a family trait in this story. But if we're honest, we kind of get Sarah's response, don't we? It's one thing to receive extravagant promises from God. But when the fulfillment of those promises stretches beyond what seems a reasonable time period, when for decades your very own body has given you monthly reminders that it's not yet God's timing... Holding on to hope can become more and more difficult. So when these visitors come, even when Abraham somehow understands that he's hosting Yahweh himself, and when talk turns yet again to that promise, it's brought so much pain. You'd rather just block the whole thing out rather than break down in tears or point an accusing finger like Abram did back in chapter 15. Sarah opts for self-protective laughter. But for God, faithfulness to his promises is serious. So when he asks Sarah about her laughter, I love how the text doesn't pull any punches here. Sarah was afraid, so she lied. Now, let's just name that anytime someone in Scripture lies to the Almighty, it doesn't tend to go well. And so we find ourselves holding our breath a little bit like, oh, what's going to happen to Sarah? But just like when Abram called out God, where we might expect swift judgment, Sarah experiences stunning grace. And we see it on full display in chapter 21. Would you turn there? God's grace to Sarah, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. 
and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. It's easy to see through repetition what the author of Genesis is highlighting. As he had said, what he had promised at the very time God had promised him. In Isaac's unlikely birth, God shows himself true to his word, even in the most improbable situations. The absolute unlikeliness of this story is easy to see in verses 6 and 7 in Sarah's response. The unexpected laughter, their nearly impossible timing. All of it points to hope fulfilled through great uncertainty. And it's precisely this echo of Advent that sends our minds and our hearts hurtling forward to another seemingly impossible situation. When the people of God were being oppressed and ruled by the most powerful nation on earth, aching for the arrival of a long ago promised Messiah. Could you turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1? It's the third book in the New Testament. One of two, alongside Matthew, that provides details of the story leading up to and surrounding the birth of Jesus, the story we celebrate most this time of year. And in Luke 1, what we find is another account of another divine visitor coming to another woman. But this time, rather than a nonagenarian, the surprised hostess is a teenager. Beginning in verse 26, Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. In church history, this incident is known as the Annunciation. Just like in Genesis 18, in Abraham and Sarah's life, this angelic conversation with a teenage girl in Nazareth was a pivotal moment in the story of God's great rescue operation. And if you were listening closely, you likely already heard some parallels to the ground we've covered here this morning. So I want us to briefly consider three particular echoes of Advent from Abraham and Sarah's story in Genesis that show up in the story of Mary. And the first is 
divine visitation. This is probably the most obvious parallel. The visitation by the divine. So in the Bible, angels are treated as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, representatives, messengers of the king himself. So as a result, whenever someone in scripture encounters an angel, they typically respond with trembling, fear, even bowing down, all ways that we might expect one to respond to the deity itself. Now, this is not being left with a warm, fuzzy feeling after bumping into Michael Landon or Roma Downey or Denzel. These are earth and heaven split open moments of awe, wonder, even fear at the power of God. But we need to see God doesn't send such ambassadors simply for shock effect. He sends to remind about promises fulfilled. More often than not, these ambassadors, these messengers of the kingdom of God, angels come to remind and to refresh. And in Mary's story, historic distance and over-familiarity have probably made it difficult for us to fully grasp the magnitude of the promises that Gabriel references in his conversation with Mary. The words of verses 32 to 33 are loaded with meaning. Would you look at them again? He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. For generations, the people of God had waited for the promised Messiah. They had marinated in the hope given them in the Hebrew scriptures. They had probably even committed those promises to memory. Promises like those found, for example, in Isaiah 9. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In Genesis 21, the author points out that in the birth of Isaac, the Lord was fulfilling the promise made in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 18. And now, thousands of years later, standing in front of Mary is an ambassador of heaven, drawing on language like that that we find in Isaiah 9 to describe the unlikely child in her womb. And yet, I'm sure that you notice that these divine reminders of the promises and purposes of God were met with some questions. So let's talk for a moment about unstoppable power. Let's face it, the promise that God will open the womb of an infertile woman in her 90s or will somehow occupy the womb of a teenage virgin are both equally hard to imagine. And so in each case, the women involved expressed at least confusion, if not outright doubt. And in each case, their questions were met with very similar reminders of the power of the one making the promise so in Genesis 18, 14, we read, is anything too hard for the Lord? In Luke 1, 37, it's a verse most often translated for nothing will be impossible with God. Friends, Sarah and Mary remind us that when we face unimaginable obstacles, desperate challenges to our faith, or delays of hope beyond what seems reasonable, we can either dig deep to try to find more grit or we can look outside ourselves to the God of inexhaustible power, the one for whom nothing is impossible. And this is good news as we think about 
the situations in our own lives that seem equally impossible. Because as we all know all too well, the world of peace, justice, and righteousness foretold by the prophet Isaiah is not yet here in its fullness. We live in a world that is marked by strife and violence and warfare. We each walk through spaces of relational difficulty, brokenness, pain, loss. Our bodies deteriorate and our loved ones die. So while we rejoice that the baby in Bethlehem signals the fulfillment of so many promises, we also confess that what God promised to do through Mary's kid is not yet here in full. And we have unmet longings for redemption and restoration that run deeper still. The true purpose of Advent is to get us to look forward expectantly. Advent, therefore, is an invitation to name the tension of living in a world that has already known the redemptive work of Christ and yet longs and waits for the fullness of redemption, which means it's time to address James's cliffhanger. The beautiful reality of the future is described by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation when he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now, I realize that there are some some here today who read those words and find ourselves responding similarly to Abram in Genesis 15, questioning the track record, the delay, and maybe even God's commitment to even bring such a thing about. For us, as we look at the world around us, we see the old order of things. I know enough of the stories enough of the people in this room to know that many of you are walking Genesis 15 roads in your own life. The things you imagine and hope for haven't turned out as you expected, and the dissonance and even the grief is deep. For the weary hearts among us, those feeling like these promises are deferred too long and wondering what reason we have to hold on to hope, Advent gently thunders to remember the children to consider the births of the children of promise and the faithfulness of the God behind it all. Friends, God is faithful and can be trusted to do what he's promised to do and to be who he's promised to be. And that remains true. Even in seasons when hope seems as unlikely as a 90-year-old nursing an infant or a virgin teenager carrying a child in her womb. So as we wait to behold the fullness of God's promises We wait with the kind of hope that, even before the story is fully clear, can say along with Mary, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And sometimes this is a burden that we need others to help us carry. So we speak hope and life and resolve into one another's lives. We point one another towards God's character and faithfulness, even in the darkest seasons of life. This is one reason that we have prayer teams week by week 
as we remember the cost that Jesus paid to ratify our hope. Jesus' birth inaugurated a kingdom of hope, but did so through a seemingly hopeless turn in the story when he was crucified like a criminal. Jesus allowed his body to be pierced and his blood to be shed for the forgiveness of sins, for reconciliation with God, and for accomplishing the seemingly impossible. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Ephesians, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. There is no more impossible situation than something dead longing to be alive unless Christ enters that story. When we were dead and without hope, God did the seemingly impossible and made us alive in Christ. And if you are part of the family of God by faith in Christ, If you are one who was once dead and is now alive, you're invited to our family meal to come to the table, to bring your gratitude and also your laments for the ways that the world is not yet whole. Come allow the table to fortify your hope and to enhance your longing. Come and ask God to show himself faithful again. We will have our prayer teams available on either side as well as in the back, to pray with you about these things or anything at all as we continue in our worship.